Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, to another Romeo Carey podcast. So what we've got here takes us back to 2017. As you may know by now, I am an educator, have been an educator for a better part of 20 years. Really, I mentor young adults and inspire them to take on things bigger than themselves. A lot of them go on to do amazing things, fun to be a part of. So in this episode... I've got one of my students, Austin Furman, who he was a collector of celebrities. He loved taking selfies. And I said, you know, you need to raise your game into not taking selfies. That's a good pursuit, but much better off interviewing them. And that's what we did. We set on a path to turn him into a TV producer and... I was his mentor. And in that path, he interviewed some of, you know, Hollywood's and the world's greatest figures. This particular incident took place in 2017. It was just me and Austin. And actually on this event, I think his mother came along, which was, yeah, she did. This was recorded at UCLA where Michael Dukakis was uh, teaching at UCLA. And we recorded it. You could find these interviews also on Romeo Carey content on the YouTube channel. But here it is, the interview from 2017 by Austin Furman interviewing the really potential president of the United States. Had he not made one fatal flaw, you'll learn that if you don't already know it. Michael Dukakis. Hi, welcome to Meet Up with Austin. I'm Austin Furman with a very interesting guest today, longest serving governor of Massachusetts who came out of nowhere to win the Democratic nomination in 1988 for the presidency, Michael Dukakis. Before we get to your career and what you're up to now, and uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about your childhood and what led to you having a lifelong commitment to public policy. So can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing and what led to you having an interest in this area? Okay. Um, Both of my parents are immigrants. My dad, from a predominantly Greek town in western Turkey, where there were a million and a half Greeks back in the late 19th, early 20th century. His parents were originally from the island of Lesbos, which is just off the Turkish coast. And which was the place, by the way, the way where that little boy washed up, drowned. One of those difficult photographs I think people have ever seen, just kind of reflected the tragedy of this refugee thing. And when my dad was 15 in 1912, he decided he was going to come to the United States over the violent objection of his father to get an education, which was very unusual in those days. Most young Greek men came over here to get a job, not an education. I mean, most of them didn't have more than three or four years of elementary school education. And my father arrived in Lowell, Massachusetts in 1912. Didn't speak a word of English in that Nicholas pocket. He had a couple of brothers who were working in the textile mills in Lowell and Lawrence in Massachusetts. And 12 years later, that young man was graduating from the Harvard Medical School. And how he did it, I have no idea. I mean, it seems inconceivable to me these days. And in fact, he lived in a room 
on the top floor of a house on Bogus Street in Brooklyn, Massachusetts, four blocks from where Katie and I have been living for the last 53 years. Um, graduated from Harvard Medical School, became a doctor, um, and practiced medicine for 52 years. On Huntington Avenue in Boston, right across from the Museum of Fine Arts, a stone throw from the Greek Orthodox Cathedral. He was a remarkable guy in just many, many ways. He'd be loved by his patients. My mother came over here in 1913 from the city of Larissa in Greece, which is a fairly substantial provincial capital in central Greece. Uh, she was nine um, and went to the Winter, Winter Street Elementary School in Havel, Massachusetts, another factory town. This one making shoes, not textiles, just down the road from Lowell. And thanks to an elementary school principal who had a very special way with immigrant kids, um, she not only did well, she continued to do well in school, strongly encouraged by Mr. Gray. And my mother was the first Greek young woman ever to go away to college unescorted in the history of the United States. We cannot find anybody else who did that before her. And she went to Bates College in Lewis, Maine, graduated Phi Beta Kappa in 1925. I mean, these immigrant kids. It's a story Trump should listen to. Yeah. Um, and she became a teacher. Got my dad married, had two boys. My brother, who was older than I was, by about three years than I. Um, so how did I get involved in politics? Mm -hmm. Well, here's a story for you. So I'm a third grader at the Edith C. Baker School in Brookline, Massachusetts. Brookline is a town just outside of Boston. And Mary Ripley, my teacher, decides to have the election of class officers. In the third grade, it was right in the middle of World War II, so we were all into this. And for reasons I'm not sure I understand, my classmates elected me president of class. <laughs> third grade. And... Um, Years later, when I became governor, I discovered Mrs. Ripley was still teaching in the town of Grot, right on the New Hampshire border. I called her up and I said, how would you like to come down to the state house and uh, bring your children, your students with you, and introduce them to the guy that you got started in politics. Wow. And just a week ago, I spoke at an event at the Cal State Fulton Library. And uh, who do you think showed up? Mrs. Richie. Ripley's son. Oh, her son. Her son, yeah. Who I never met, who lives out here, and came with an album with pictures of that day when she brought her class from Groton to the State House to see me. You know? Those are the very special moments that you have in this business. And did Mary Ripley do it? I don't know. This is my Greek background. You know, every Greek kid learns early that democracy began in Athens. Was it the obvious injustice around me at a time when the United States was racist, it was anti-Semitic, uh, we had terrible poverty in our cities, back when America was great, right? No, America was not great in those days. And um, for whatever reason, I got interested. And then a guy named Joe McCarthy came along, a United States Republican United States Senator from Wisconsin. And we 
we even have a name these days for what he brought with him, McCarthyism. Rabid, anti-communist, accusatory, not unlike Trump in some respects, but worse, actually. And um, I was just appalled by this guy. I, think, I thought he was just trampling on civil rights and liberties. Didn't seem to understand what democracy was all about. And um, I went to Swarthmore College outside of Philadelphia. Very active politically. It was kind of a hotbed of anti-McCarthy sentiment. Graduate in 55, was active, quite active politically. Graduate in 55, came back to Boston, and six weeks later I was being sworn into the United States Army. We had a draft at the time. And three days after I got to Fort Dix, New Jersey, for my first eight weeks of basic training, I had what passed for a personnel interview, um, conducted by another draftee who was a personnel specialist. But he's got a file on me. I'm this Greek kid from Boston. Just spent four years in college. And he opens it up and he says, uh, so I see you ran a fundraising drive for the American Civil Liberties Union while you were on the Swarthmore campus. I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I did. And he said, uh, and you were the chairman of the Students for Democratic Action, which was the student wing of the Americans for Democratic Action, which was a liberal democratic organization. I said, yeah. As a matter of fact, I didn't tell him this, but I was succeeded as chairman of the SDA at Swarthmore by a guy named Carl Levin, who, who just finished serving for 18 years in the United States Senate for Michigan, a great guy. And the interview continued along these lines. This guy had a file on me with every single political activity that I had ever engaged in at Swarthmore College in the early 50s. Where do you think that he got that information? We learned about 10 years later that the FBI had a tap on the Swarthmore switchboard. And in those days, there were no cell phones. You didn't have phones in the rooms. You had to go through the switchboard. And they were recording every single telephone conversation that went through that place. And as I started popping, popping up as a guy that apparently was interested in politics, they uh, created a file on me. And they must have had millions of these. If they had one on me, they must have had one on thousands and thousands of people. That was McCarthyism. And uh, I was not a fan of McCarthyism. Unquestionably, that guy had a lot to do with me getting into politics. And then I said, John Kennedy began running for the presidency. He came from my hometown. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we all related to Kennedy in so many ways. And from that point on, I got really interested, active, and then ran for the legislature, selected four times, and ran for governor. I see. One lost, one won. So. Ran four times and won three times. Yeah. You mentioned the U.S. Army. You deferred a Harvard Law education to enlist in the U.S. Army. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience in the U.S. Army? Well, I was a draftee, like thousands of others. Trained initially at Fort Dix, New Jersey, and then a place called Camp Gordon, Georgia, which was a signal corps facility. And then was shipped to um, Korea and to... A, the, the remnants of a town called Munsan, Korea, which had been wiped out. It was right in the middle of the war zone. Fortunately for me, the war was over and the truce had been signed. But it was a kind of, uh, still a pretty dangerous place in many ways. And um, like most experiences, it was an important experience for me. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it again and again, but it was an important experience for me. 
I'd like to know a little bit about your most proud accomplishments as a governor of Massachusetts. Well, first, the, the state government that I walked into in 1962 as a New York State legislator was one of the three or, most, three or four most corrupt states in the country. It was really bad. And I thought one of my jobs ought to be to try to help clean it up. And I think if you talk to people in Massachusetts, they'll tell you that we did a pretty good job of, you know, not that every once in a while somebody doesn't do something dumb. It's dishonest, but by and large, I think we did that. And then I inherited an economy which was a disaster. It had the second highest unemployment rate in the country, which was in 1975. It, uh, had the biggest state deficit proportionally in the country. They were calling us the new Appalachia. You know, I mean, it was it was it was pretty fierce. So, my job was to do what try to turn that around and and do a lot of other good things at the same time. And over the course of, of twelve years, I'd like to think we did a lot. We did a lot. In some slippage, but you know, today Massachusetts is thriving, especially east and two-thirds of the state. We still have work to do in the western part of the state and southeastern Massachusetts. And um, it's the envy of most other states that the best public educational system in the country. Um, and generally, is doing exceedingly well. And I'd like to think that I made some contribution to that. Yeah. Fast forwarding a little bit to the 1988 election for president. Right. right. Would you go back and change, if there could be one thing, you go back and change? Two things, two things, if you'll allow me to. Yeah. First, I made a decision, which turned out to be a dumb decision, that I was not going to respond to the Bush attack campaign. There had been an enormous amount of polarization and anger and this kind of stuff under Reagan. And I just thought people were ready for something a lot more positive. And I'm a positive guy, you know, I'm not, I'm not an attacker, I mean, I'm a guy that, that likes to get things done pull people, good people together and, and turn them loose on issues and problems. Um, I thought the country was ready for something a lot more positive than what we had had under Reagan, with an enormous, to repeat, an enormous amount of polarization. Not unlikely, not unlike today. And it turned out that was just a big mistake. I mean, if the other guy's going to come at you, particularly with stuff that's either inaccurate or oftentimes unfair, your job is to make sure that people understand the truth and, and to develop a strategy in advance for dealing with it that uh, effectively blunts the attacks and gives you an opportunity to continue to remain positive. And secondly, I had been elected over and over again with very strong precinct-based grassroots organizations, meaning what? A precinct captain and six block captains in every single precinct, making personal contact on an ongoing basis with every single voting household. And I spent too much time, as I was thinking about running, talking to people who I thought knew more than I did about running the presidency, all of whom poo-pooed the idea on the national level of a precinct-based grassroots organization, maybe for city council or something, but not for, not for a big country in this kind. They were just dead wrong, and unfortunately, I spent too much time listening to them. And uh, we did not do the kind of precinct-based grassroots organizing that we should have done. I see. Looking back on that election, the technology in 1988 compared to 2017 is 
really different? How would you compare the 24-hour news cycle and Twitter and how things have changed since then? Well, this may sound strange to you, but I'm not sure fundamentally it changes much. Oh, sure, there's new technology, there's this whole Twitter thing, which uh, Trump apparently has used, at least to some extent, to good effect. Um, but one of the reasons I'm committed to precinct-based grassroots organizing is because I don't think you ever ought to minimize the impact of person-to-person, door-to-door, neighborhood-to-neighborhood campaign. And uh, if you buy into the, the uh, more modern version of you know computers, uh, handheld computers, this kind of stuff, running around doing stuff, I think two things happen. Two things happen. First, you don't do the door-to-door, precinct-to-precinct, person-to-person kind of campaign. And secondly, um, you aren't connecting with an awful lot of people that you should be connecting with. And I'm particularly concerned about my own party, because it was obvious we did not connect with anywhere near as many people as we should have. We bought into this red-blue narrative. You know, that's red, that's blue, which is, I think, just a terrible mistake. A terrible mistake. Was Hillary Clinton lacking a clear message? No, I don't think she was lacking a clear message. She was taking an enormous amount of pounding. And that started, you know, years before. Um, All of this email stuff was at least broadly supervised by the State Department. Um, And as we know, other secretaries of state had had similar private email arrangements. In fact, I don't know of a single person in Washington of any significance doesn't have a private email. I mean, it's the only way you get a hold of them. If I wanted to get a hold of my former lieutenant governor who became secretary of state, I wouldn't email John Kerry at, at state.gov. You know, you need either what? A cell phone or a, or a private email. And uh, all of that stuff was, I, I thought, absolute nonsense. Um, so there we, but she took a, a terrible pounding on it, and it wasn't because she didn't have a lack of clear message. I think I thought the message "Stronger Together" was a very good one. I thought she was terrific in the debates. I thought she she clearly defeated Trump in every single one of those debates. I mean, in some cases, wasn't even close. And um, and she won <laughs> by three million votes. But under this crazy system we have with the electoral college, she didn't become president. Now, the faster we can get rid of that, the better. It should have been abolished 250 years ago, or a couple of hundred years ago. You mentioned you thought Hillary Clinton really obliterated Donald Trump in those abate, yeah. d- presidential debates. Actually, she, she obliterated him. But she wrong word clearly, there. clearly, you know. Had the upper hand. Yeah, he was kind of a strange duck up there wandering around, and almost, as she said, almost looked as if he was stalking her, you know. Um, but for whatever reason. With that in mind, were you surprised that Donald Trump won the presidency? Um, If you had asked me this question on the 12th, the 12th day before the election, I would have said, yeah, because she had it locked before Comey got up and made those statements. I don't think there's any question about it. And why he did, I don't know. I think he's a pretty decent guy. I don't think it was done for partisan reasons. He was under a lot of pressure from Republican House chairman to uh, to release them. 
obviously didn't do his homework, didn't know what they were made up of. And um, as it turned out, the FBI already had these things. This was nothing new. So the country's in an uproar. It's a week, 10 days, and so forth before the election. And I think it had a profound effect on what happened. With all that's going on in the U.S. right now with protests and Women's March and all this, do you encourage people now more than ever to get involved in politics, especially younger people? All the time. And in fact, what's happened, it's very interesting. I mean, I certainly sense it in my classrooms and, and talking to students here. What's happened is that her loss has triggered a much greater interest in the political process than the part of young people. A determination to go out there and do something about this kind of situation. And I hope that includes supporting the National Popular Vote Campaign, which you probably know is a way of abolishing the Electoral College without necessarily amending the Constitution. And um, and so, uh, you know, I am much encouraged by these young people. I've been teaching now for 26, 27 years, 21 of them here at UCLA. And my students are eager, they're enthusiastic, they're strongly committed, they're angry, but um, they want to make a difference. And I do everything I can to encourage them, obviously. Now that the Republicans control the Senate, and the House and the White House, does that make you want to jump in there? And No, it does not, because I'm 83 years of age. I feel like a million bucks, but I'm not sure I want to go down that road again. And there are lots of good people coming along. You look great. I feel good. I feel terrific. Um, my mother used to say, if you want to live a long life, pick your parents carefully. So my dad died when he was 84. My mother when she was practically 100. Jeez. So. And Kitty's father was the associate director of the Boston Pops and was still conducting when he was 94. So. We plan to be around for a while, um, but uh, I'm not sure I'm ready for another presidential campaign. And in any event, it's time to develop some new blood, new talent, younger people coming along who can take the fight to the other side. I think, uh, I mean, who knows what's going to happen to Trump this first week has been a disaster, but uh, let's assume he sticks around for these four years. I mean, it's obviously going to be a, a major contest. Yeah. And, uh, a presidential campaign has to be mentally draining. It's not so much mentally draining. This may sound strange to you. But it gets dull and boring. Can you believe that? Mm. How come? Well, because they're very long. I mean, I started campaigning seriously for the presidency in April of 1987. The election was November of 1988. That's a year and a half. Yeah. No, I was also a governor. I was back to the Massachusetts State House regularly. I mean, one thing, I mean, if the fact that you've been a, been a pretty good governor has something to do with the fact that you're a candidate, the last thing the word you need is, is to see that, that administration of yours fall apart because you're not there. So I spent a fair amount of my time in Boston and at the State House. But the primary is lots of fun. It's one, one state campaign at a time. You're doing a lot of the same kind of thing you're normally doing. And I was, you know, I was at about 1% in the polls when I started. I mean, nobody, it's not that nobody gave me a chance. We had seven of us. And with some interesting names. Uh, Al Gore was one of them. Dick Gephardt was another. Um, Joe Biden was another. Jesse Jackson was another. It was an interesting field. And it was long. 
It was on. I finally clinched it in New York in April of 1988. Great, fine, terrific, right? And then you got to start all over again. General election. The general election. Um, and again, you know, after a while, I mean, how many times can you say the same thing? <laughs> Five times every day. Uh, now, I think there are things we could have done to make it better. I think Clinton did a better job of that. Um, but um, it's long. It's really long. But look, good, talented people out there. I hope and expect they're going to be running. Can you tell us a little bit about your teaching at Northeastern and UCLA right now? Um, I was governor for four years and I was defeated for re-election. I came back and beat the guy that beat me and then served another term beyond that. So three out of four terms. Yeah. Uh, so what did I do during the interim? I really wasn't interested in going back to my uh, law practice. I never loved the law. I was with a great firm. They couldn't have been more supportive of me, but I didn't love the law. And I decided I wanted to teach. And fortunately, there was a great dean at the Kennedy School at Harvard, Graham Allison, who was nice enough not only to welcome me in, but basically said to me, why don't you sit in the back of the class with these two particular professors, each of whom, by the way, had been an excellent public manager and was a very good teacher. And I just want you to sit there for a couple of months and watch these guys operate. Note how they how they teach, what they do, how they go about it. That, that was a wonderful thing for him to do because I really had a chance to sit at the feet of two really superb public servants and teachers. And um, it really kind of prepared me for going ahead and turning myself into what I hope is a reasonably decent classroom teacher. Did they have two opposite styles? Somewhat, they, had, they had somewhat different styles, though very similar experiences. Um, Gordon Chase was a superb teacher. I mean, one of the best I've ever seen. Manny, very good also, Manny Carballo, but in a different way. And at the Kennedy School, I'm not sure what they're doing it these days, but the Kennedy School, they use case methods a lot. I use them in my teaching. Still, it's the, it's the only way I know to really teach public policy and public management. And so you teach, if you teach with cases, you teach Socratically. You don't get up and lecture for an hour and a half, which would bore me to death anyway. I can't imagine listening to myself talk for an hour and a half. Um, so I teach Socratically. I use case studies. And, uh, and my students seem to be engaged by that. And I call on people. I mean, you know, this is not Dukakis lecturing, you know. Uh, it's a stimulating conversation. Yeah, which makes teaching a lot more interesting mm -hmm. and gives you an opportunity to get to know your students early on, which I try to do. So the teaching side of my life has really been terrific. It's best best thing I ever did. I mean, best decision I've ever made. And... Um, I'm still going at it, and I've been teaching for, what, 26, 27 years. For people that may not know, can you tell us what the Next Generation Initiative is? Well, there are a couple of them. <laughs> I mean, going by different names. One of them is, involves a largely Greek-American organization, which, um, which tries to get young Greek-Americans of the next generation deeply and actively involved in public life. And I've been very active with them. Um, and then the other that I'm familiar with is a foundation that my younger daughter is deeply involved in called Too Young to Fail. And I think there's a next generation piece to that. We've learned from 
research that um, disadvantaged kids, if given an opportunity to learn early, just to listen to music, to, to, to experience sights and sounds and this kind of thing, seem to gain enormously in terms of their ability to learn. So my car is deeply involved in that, in that uh, foundation and uh, doing what? Trying to bring early, early education to these youngsters in a way that will help them enormously. What do you do for fun? What, what, do do for your, fun? what are some of your hobbies? What are, what are some of my hobbies? Well, I'm married to the best looking Medicare recipient in America, even though she's just turned 80. Uh, and these days we're great walkers. I was a cross country runner, I ran the Boston Marathon when I was 17 and 19. 51. That was a record field of 300, if you can believe it. But Kitty and I love walking, um, and we do a lot of it. Uh, we spend a lot of time together. Um, and one of the things that not being in office makes it possible for you to do is to do some reading. You do a lot of reading when you're in office, but it's memos, it's policy statements, it's this, it's that, it's the other thing. And I love history. I never read fiction because I think the real thing is a lot more interesting. Mm -hmm. But I always have a book, a history book of some kind. I just finished uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin's book on Teddy Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and, and the muckrake journalists of that. And let me tell you something. There are not only great similarities, but the American people are worried about domestic terrorism. They ought to go back and read that book because we had at least two groups. One was made up of Marxist communists, and the other was made up of anarchists, largely from Italy. And they were out there blowing people's houses up every day. In fact, once, this was back in 1917, 18, 1919, um, they actually blew up the house of the incumbent attorney general in Washington, a guy named Palmer, who happened to be a Swarthmore graduate, and is the guy who created the so-called Palmer Raids. Uh, the precursor, I think, really, to the FBI raiding people's homes, I mean, taking these folks and deporting them, and so on and so forth. But I think it was a weekend in the Northeast back 1917, 1890, where um, bombs went off in seven different cities. I mean, domestic bombs planted in seven cities in the United States. The country was, was petrified. And um, the hysteria that came out of that, you can imagine, people were, were scared, had a lot to do with the indictment of a couple of guys named Sacco and Vanzetti in Boston. It was one of the great notorious cases. Um, Italian immigrants, um, so far as anybody could tell, peaceful, but they were Italian anarchists, not to be confused with Marxists. And neither one of those guys committed the crime. I mean, we, we now know that that's pretty definitely the case. Uh, they weren't even close to Braintree, Massachusetts, where the crime was committed. But they had they were railroaded through that trial. Um, it was just appalling, with a judge who was a little crazy um, and a strong anti-communist. He was quoted by somebody saying, I think during the trial, did you see what I did to those commie bastards? This is a judge in Massachusetts. And subsequently, years later, was discovered trying to direct traffic in Harvard Square. I mean, the guy, you gotta, and it was terrible justice. I was governor in 1977 when 
which was the 50th anniversary of their execution. And I issued a proclamation basically saying, I can't pardon these guys, but Massachusetts should exonerate them because it was obvious they didn't commit the crime. And I'm reading Doris Kearns Goodwin and all about this, uh, these Italian anarchists and Marxist communists who um, are running around terrorizing the country. I mean, terrorizing the country. This is 19, 15, 16, 17, 18. And you got this attorney general who's running around going after them. I mean, as, as uh, unconstitutionally as he possibly can. Well, it's one of the reasons you read history. Um, to remind you that um, these kinds of things have happened before. Not that it ought to make us any more complacent, but there's something reassuring about the fact that the country is still here, <laughs> even though this stuff was going on. And boy, was it going on. You read a lot of books. Are you a David McCullough fan? I'm a David McCullough fan. Huge. Where do you see yourself in the next five to ten years? Well, I think I'll continue to do teaching until somebody taps me on the shoulder and says, Dukakis, you're losing it. Mm. Uh, I love teaching, I love working with young people, and love the opportunity it gives a guy like me to share, you know, whatever I know about things. Two of my former UCLA students are now committee chairs in the California Assembly, and I'm very proud of them. One of them, Jimmy Gomez, is running for Congress. He was a student of mine here. Jeez. And I've got hundreds and hundreds of former students now that are out there doing all kinds of great work. My student assistant, a few years ago, here in the graduate program, is now the mayor of Riverside, California. And Rusty Bailey is doing a terrific job in uh, Riverside. And I've got lots and lots of folks, obviously, on the East Coast doing the same thing. So uh, it's it's a wonderful feeling to be able to do this. And I'd like to think I'm contributing to a better country and a better world. And I'd like to think that those of us who are teaching, especially these kinds of subjects, are doing that. I think so, and it's great fun to do it. To wrap up, meet up with Austin, I'd like to ask Michael Dukakis, what your thoughts are on politics today? I don't think fundamentally, this may sound strange to people, I don't think fundamentally it's changed that much. Nor do I think that the way, the best way to get elected has changed. It's a precinct captain and six block captains making personal contact on an ongoing basis with every single voting household. And I'm serious. It's the way I got elected and re-elected. Sadly, I didn't do it during the presidential campaign. A big mistake. And it took Barack Obama not once but, but twice to prove without any doubt that precinct-based grassroots organizing works. But you've got to do it. I mean, you've got to do it. You can't kind of just knock on the door of uh, only the people that are registered Democrats and voted in the last four elections. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about every single precinct every single voter. And believe me, it works. Because I, I gave this little speech to Elizabeth Warren back when she was just starting to run and had never run for elective office. And she's sitting there taking notes. I was very impressed. And Kitty and I were sitting there getting to beat her. And I said, you know, there are 2,157 precincts in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. You've got to go out and get 2,157 precinct captains, each of whom recruit six block captains and neighborhood captains. Their job is to go out there and made personal contact with every single voting household. And she did it. So about five days before that election, both Boston newspapers published polls. One of which said it was tied, and the other one which said Brown was ahead, Scott Brown was ahead. She beat him by nine percentage points. How come? All those folks in the field. 
all those folks in the field. We went up, knocked down doors for them. Um, so, definitely different. If it's different, we didn't have Twitter, we didn't have this, we didn't have that. But uh, if you were to come to me and say, look, I'm thinking of running for whatever, the assembly, if you got any advice to me, for me I would have said, uh, I would say to you, let me give you the speech I gave Elizabeth Warren, and also to Val Patrick, who had never run for elective office, ran for governor of Massachusetts, won by 20 percentage points. 20! Um, believe me, it works, and too few people are doing it. Alrighty, you heard it. Okay. From Michael Dukakis, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Good to see you. Good to see you, very too. Very fun. Yep. This is Mike Dukakis, and you're watching Absolute KBEV.